BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On today's episode of Open Record. I want to do my part to make sure that the schools are safe. The demand for disinfecting cleaning supplies and emergency shelter. They might have been able to get through the first couple of months, but now they're really suffering. All while Kenosha fends off a cyber attack. It's called hacktivism. Contact 6 investigator Jenna Sachs takes us behind the scenes of her stories and answers your consumer questions. From the Fox 6 Studios, this is Open Record. I'm Brian Polson. Amanda St. Hilaire is on assignment. Today is Thursday, September 10th. And I'm here once again with Contact 6's Jenna Sachs. Jenna, good morning and welcome back to Open Record. Good morning. It's always nice to be here. Well, you have had uh, a number of stories air since the last time you were on. And boy, talk about uh, subjects that are all over the map. Uh, You've really had your hands in a lot of stuff. Let's start, I guess, with the one that probably has uh, maybe the most relatability because we've all been there. An issue you cannot escape if you've gone grocery shopping since March. The empty shelves that never seem to be stocked with disinfecting wipes. So what is going on with that? Obviously, there's been a huge demand, but this many months later, why are the shelves still empty? And that's why we really did this story is to explain why we're seeing these shortages. And as part of our story, we went to six area retailers on a Friday and we found disinfecting wipes at just one of them. And there were maybe three or four containers left on the shelves. So these are hard to come by. And it turns out when we looked into this, sales of disinfecting wipes are up 75% since the pandemic began, according to Nielsen. Now the numbers would certainly be higher if it were not for these widespread shortages. And there's a number of reasons for it. I mean, it turns out there's a priority list. You know, you are a lower priority than a hospital or a business who needs these wipes to remain open. Um, And they have contracts with these companies. And another thing is that, you know, manufacturing certainly wasn't in place to meet demand like this. You think about toilet paper, right? There was a huge demand for toilet paper for a while. And the demand for toilet paper never went up. It's not like people were suddenly using a ridiculous amount of toilet paper, they were just hoarding it. Whereas with these wipes, people were using much, much more than they had in the past, and that manufacturing just wasn't in place, and it can take years to add a factory. Um, and we actually found the pers- the perfect person for this story. I found her through the Milwaukee Moms blog. Her name is Heather Lennox, and she has six kids, which made me feel like my life must be easy by comparison. And four of them are about to start school. And on their school supplies list is a canister of Clorox wipes. And it's not easy to find those. She wanted to find them for the school so the school could remain safe. And so what she did with her friends in her neighborhood is they pretty much set up a text chain. And whenever one of them saw disinfecting wipes on the shelves, they would text each other and say, hey, you know, Clorox wipes at Meyer, come on over immediately. And they would try to help her out. Um, But there are are several, several reasons um, that it's just taking a while. I mean, businesses also have to ask themselves, um, 
you know, what happens when there's a vaccine? Is this demand suddenly going to drop off? Is it worth investing in something that can take years to put in place if demand is eventually going to scale back? And the items that have to come together to make a canister of disinfecting wipes are actually a bit more complicated than you would think. Uh, the fabric is a woven fabric. It's not just a simple paper product. And the fabric used in wipes is also used in masks. So there's a huge demand for that fabric right now. Also, the chemicals in the product are special. They have to be proven to kill 99.9% .9 of germs. They have to be certified by the FDA. And I spoke with another local manufacturer who makes hospital grade wipes and he was saying, we're having issues with the fabric. We actually had to stop production for a while because we ran out of cloth, but there's also issues getting, you know, the lids and the canisters. So he's trying to get uh, more equipment up and running. They've already doubled the amount of time they spend making hospital grade wipes over at Rebel Manufacturing. But he says the equipment they've ordered since the pandemic, it hasn't arrived yet. It likely won't be online until 2022. So who knows what our world is going to look like by 2022. We sure hope it's going to be a little closer to what we know as normal, but who knows that we didn't think this was going to last this long when it first uh, kicked in back in March. We all hope. I would. I think that there's still going to be more demand for disinfecting wipes than there was before the pandemic. I think people are going to change a lot of their lifestyle choices when it comes to cleaning, but I don't know if they're ever going to be in demand the way they are right now. So these are the kind of questions that businesses and manufacturers have to ask themselves. Well, I mean, clearly in March, the, the demand became high because it was so new and we were all cleaning up our own spaces. But then I'm guessing as the economy started to reopen, every time you see a business, a school, a government agency, anyone talk about reopening something, they reassure their customers or the public that we'll be disinfecting in between each use or we'll be disinfecting at various intervals. They're trying to reassure people we're doing all we can to wipe down surfaces. And when you wipe down surfaces, presumably you're trying to use a disinfecting wipe of some kind. Exactly. And this is obviously the easiest way to clean your surface. Other people would say, well, you can just use bleach and water, but it's really easy to just grab a quick, you know, Clorox wipe and wipe something down. That's a good question, though. Is bleach and water as effective if you just grab a paper towel, soak it in bleach and water or whatever it is and wipe it down? Is that as good as using a commercial disinfecting wipe? I mean, depending on how you mix it, yes. Uh, you also have, though, the smell of bleach and maybe businesses don't want that so much and you know there, there's there's a lot of pluses and negatives to using different products but no question you know demand for these items like clorox wipes i mean clorox said their demand has increased sixfold um, and their shelves won't be fully stocked until 2021 so that demand is very much still there they do think they're going to get out of this that we're going to see shelves stocked by next year or is that just a a hope because you said it seems like the challenge like you said would be on the one hand you could say well let's ramp up manufacturing let's add a new manufacturing line let's cut off a different product because here's where the demand is but if you invest in those sorts of things and then next year well this falls off obviously you've made potentially a bad investment so are, are they sure they're going to be catching up by next year or is that just sort of wishful thinking right now well all we can really do is go by what clorox says and they aren't extremely transparent they just put out statements now and then or do little interviews but basically they're saying they don't expect to be fully stocked until 2021 so it sounds like they are putting in that effort to ramp up production and i know you know rebel converting is also investing in more equipment to increase their production as well but 
Again, businesses have to ask themselves, how much do we want to increase that production if demand could just suddenly drop off? Uh, I'm, I'm sure we have other uh, side stories that will be coming out of this for years to come, like with all this use of disinfecting chemicals and wipes, is there any sort of side effect to things like the development of superbugs and other things because we've just been cleaning everything so much more than we did before? But that's a whole nother topic. We've got other things to talk about today, and I want to transition to another uh, topic you covered, and one that obviously has uh, a direct relation here to the pandemic, and that is the demand for uh, emergency shelter. And it is obviously skyrocketed, but in particular lately because the earlier moratoriums on evictions, things like that have expired. So it sounds like you are hearing about a really big spike in requests for emergency shelter. Well, the numbers have certainly been going up dramatically since April when demand really kind of bottomed out. And I should mention there is a new federal uh, moratorium that just went into effect. So we'll have to see how this affects things going forward. But yes, demand for emergency shelter in Milwaukee County is going up despite the fact that we have more resources available than ever before meant to prevent homelessness coming from both the state government and the federal government. So as we mentioned, Demand hit its lowest point in April, back when we had a state moratorium on evictions in place. Since then, the calls for shelter space to impact 211, they're kind of the coordinated entry point for several area shelters. Uh, their calls have increased 185%. Now that's still 15% lower than this time last year, but the demand is rising dramatically. If you look at the chart, the numbers are just going up. Uh, particularly from July into August. So in August, it was about 2,500 people who called Impact 211 asking about emergency housing. And it was really humbling for this story because I met with a couple um, named Elsa Falero and Michael Roman at their home right now, which is a tent in a backyard in Milwaukee. And when you see people living a life of homelessness, you're reminded, I guess, of all the things in your life that you're so lucky that you have, including a roof over your head. And I, I met them about a month ago and they were evicted from an illegal rooming house, which was a, a different story. But they were unable to get into an area shelter because it's particularly hard to place single adults, especially men, and they want to remain together. Um, so they were waitlisted and they spent a month, actually more than a month, living in a Milwaukee backyard. They recently told me they were finally able to get into an apartment, but thank goodness they had a, a relative who said, I can't let you in my house because of this pandemic. You can come in occasionally to shower, but you can just set up your tent in my backyard and, and that's where they've been living. So, you know, it's it's a sad situation. And you also have to remember a lot of these shelters are dealing with reduced capacity because of the pandemic. Shelters in general are operating at 70 to 80% of their total capacity in order to give people more space in response to the coronavirus. So that's impacting numbers as well. Well, I've got to think that that would be a real concern if you have already limited capacity uh, for the increased demand, limited bed space, and you've got to reduce it further because of concerns about COVID-19. You can't afford to have coronavirus get in because once you have an outbreak, now you've lost all of that capacity. Uh, have you heard whether or not that's been an issue? Are they able to do any kind of monitoring or testing? Do they have to tell people if you have symptoms that you've got to go? I, I would think that would be a difficult situation. 
I spoke with the director of the Cathedral Center, which is a shelter for women and families downtown, and they actually had to shut down for a while in March uh, to allow people to quarantine before coming into the shelter. And now they do screenings to keep the coronavirus out. And they said they haven't had a case yet, which is good news. They're at their capacity right now, even reduced capacity in response to the coronavirus. Milwaukee County does have a a, a building that they've set aside for homeless people with symptoms. It's called Clare Hall. And I think it has about 80 rooms, 60 rooms, something like that. And if you have symptoms, that's where you can go. So they have a designated place where you can go. Well, that's a, that, that's good to know because I wondered, like, what would you do if you are homeless and have symptoms or potentially have coronavirus? Where do you go now? And it would seem the options would be pretty limiting. Right. The Cathedral Center, I believe they do have a room set aside where you can isolate if you have symptoms. But these are things that different shelters have to take into consideration. And now we're heading into winter and they're having to come up with plans for their warming shelters to avoid packing so many people into those rooms and really spread them out at different locations to prevent the spread. And you suggested that the, the family that said, hey, you can stay in the backyard, but we, we just can't have you in the house right now. I've got to think as winter comes, you have so many people who may have friends or family. You, you talked in the story about how, you know, maybe in the past they could find a place to couch surf, sleep there for a few nights, maybe find somewhere else to go. But I've got to think that's harder to convince friends or family or others to, hey, let me come stay for a while in the midst of a pandemic. And that's one of the reasons that people who are involved with homelessness in the city say numbers are not um, what you would think. And let me explain. In terms of evictions, you know, there's a lot of resources available to help people avoid evictions. And evictions are actually down right now compared to this time last year. But the demand for shelter is going up. And that reason is what you just mentioned. It sounds like people are not as likely to allow people to couch surf. They don't want them going from house to house to house and spreading around those potential germs. So that's one reason that it's it's more challenging for people who are in need to actually find a place to stay right now. And the weather is turning right now. It's a chilly week for the first time this, you know, since the summer. So the demand I think is going to become more so because people may not want to sleep in the tent in the backyard. They may actually want to stay somewhere with heat. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. And, you know, a big part of these area shelters is they help people get back on their feet. They help them find work opportunities, and often they funnel people into hospitality and service industry jobs. And those just really aren't available right now. So it's, it's harder for them to help people get back on their feet by finding employment. For those who, and I want to wrap up this section by, by saying, for those who have concerns about emergency shelter, might be hearing this or know someone who does, is 211 the place to go? Is that the best way to get connected with the services you might need? Well, that's a good place to start. You can call 211. You could call the community advocates, but call them before you're being evicted. Call them when you start to feel like it might happen. They might be able to give you some sort of funding to stay in your home. They may be able to give you a hotel voucher. Impact has been handing out a lot of hotel vouchers because they have the funding to do so. I think they've handed out like 160 hotel vouchers. Churches are also providing vouchers for hotel rooms. So call them early. They may be able to help you stay in place. And that is really the better option for everybody. So we have been for six months now doing these uh, more frequent episodes of Open Record because of 
and it's in our tagline because of the COVID-19 pandemic. But it wasn't long before we realized the pandemic wasn't the only major story of 2020. We needed to do more frequent discussions of, obviously, social unrest, uh, racial unrest, calls for police reform have been a big deal. And we all know that Kenosha has been, uh, in, in recent weeks, an epicenter of, of that because of the police shooting of Jacob Blake. And something interesting happened as the protests were occurring. We all saw the fires. We saw the video of the fires. We saw the the clashes between protesters and and armed militia members who came to protect property. We've seen so much of that, but behind the scenes, something else was going on, and uh, and really we found out about it, Jenna, because we were trying to access the city of Kenosha's website to get information during all of this, and kept finding the website was down. What happened there, and what can you tell us about what was going on with the city of Kenosha website? Well, I don't think it'll surprise anyone who listens to this podcast that our Amanda St. Hilaire was monitoring the Kenosha.org website because there was a meeting, a public meeting that she wanted to view, and she was unable to access it because the website was going down. And you know how Amanda feels about open records and access. So she really? she that... noticed that. I, I hadn't heard. <laughs> yeah, is she, is she passionate about that issue? And you had also uh, heard something about this as well, which was helpful in pursuing this story. So we had a lot of people who were contributing to this report and getting it off the ground. But yeah, Kenosha.org, which is the city's website, was down throughout the day on Monday, August 24th. And you, I believe, had found a Twitter account claiming that they had hacked the website in retribution for the shooting of Jacob Blake. And you actually messaged the alleged hacker, right? Yeah, so I I actually started because Amanda and I were discussing the site being down and wondered if it might have some relationship to what was going on uh, with the protests. And so I actually just searched Twitter uh, for search terms that had to do with Kenosha website down or something like that and came across this uh, particular uh, Twitter account where they were claiming that they were responsible for exposing these vulnerabilities. And, you know, I thought, well, you know, there's a way to direct message them. Why not see if they'll talk? And sure enough, uh, they were more than happy to communicate and sort of explain a little bit about what had happened and and why. And, you know, this story is actually an interesting lesson in journalism because I had heard that perhaps the city of Kenosha's website had been hacked. And I called the city's IT director and I said, has your website been hacked? And he said, no, definitively, no, our website has not been hacked even though we were hearing reports that maybe it had been. And the next day I spoke with a professor at MATC who specializes in technology, informational services. And he said, it sounds like what's happening with the website being shut down, the city claiming there's a lot of traffic on the website. It sounds like something called the denial of service attack, which is when uh, the website is flooded with traffic either computer generated or by people, or it is being sent harmful information with the goal of making the website crash and making it inaccessible. And I called the IT director back and I said, I know you weren't hacked. You say you weren't hacked. Did you experience a denial of service attack? The wording apparently was very important. And he said, yes, we have been experiencing repeated cyber attacks uh, since that Monday, and they've been working very hard at that time 
to make sure their website didn't continue to crash. And I imagine the importance of that distinction would be when you say hacked, it suggests that someone has access to your most sensitive information. Uh, and, and obviously government sites have a lot of very sensitive data contained potentially within them. So being hacked is very different from having your website shut down to this flooding of traffic. Is, is that the distinction that they were trying to make? Yes, that's the distinction. Kenosha always said, we were not breached, no sensitive information was released, we were not successfully hacked, but there have been many attempts to make our website crash. So <laughs> that was an important distinction to them. So when I spoke with the professor from MATC, he basically said, this is something called hacktivism. It's a form of protest. It happens often to political websites, religious websites, financial institutions. And it's basically just about getting that website to crash and preventing people from accessing the information they need. Now, it can be fought off, as the city of Kenosha says they had been doing. You can do things like installing hot patches, you know, fixes, whatever updates to whatever services were breached or broken, um, and you can fend it off. So Kenosha was saying at that point they had successfully fended it off by working with their website provider, but the IT director said, we were subjected to continual attacks on that Monday from all over the world. Uh, he called it a coordinated effort to overwhelm the website, and he even said, quote, it's an attempt to bring the city to its knees and bring the government down. And he said by that Monday night, they mostly had it in hand. There were a couple times it was down on Tuesday that we had noticed, but it, it sounded like they were successfully able to fend off these attacks in retribution for the shooting of Jacob Blake. In the communication that I had with the Twitter account that claimed to have been responsible for exposing certain code that made this attack, I guess, possible. I don't, I don't really know. Uh, and we don't know if, in fact, whatever they claim to have done was, in fact, this, you know, maybe they were taking, uh, claiming responsibility for something that others were doing. We don't really know. But one thing they did make clear is that what they did and the information they posted publicly uh, for other hackers to use was done so because of the shooting of Jacob Blake. So that plays into that sense of hacktivism. There was a political purpose behind what they were doing. Absolutely. It's interesting the different ways that people can protest things. You can protest it on the streets or you can protest it by attacking various websites. And I will say the person on Twitter who claimed to hack other websites, there were two other websites that were listed in that tweet. One of them was Visit Kenosha. I contacted those two other places and both of them said they had not experienced any attacks. Um, so they, they were definitively denying that they had experienced anything. So it seems like this was mostly focused at the city of Kenosha website. What we know for certain is that the city website was down off and on because we experienced that. And, and ironically enough, uh, you know, while the point was to, as, as that one official said, was, was to potentially bring the city to its knees, uh, the, the, uh, the things that Amanda and I were both working on were things that may well have been things protesters would have been interested in finding out. For instance, we were trying to find old minutes of meetings that would demonstrate that the city had uh, for years been uh, budgeting for body cameras for the police department, but had never actually gotten them. Now, we ultimately got the documents before our story aired, so we were able to put that out there, but it was an accountability piece that showed that the city hadn't actually equipped its officers with something that would really help tell the full story of what happened with Jacob Blake. But when you're a protester, especially when you're trying, I guess when you're a hacktivist, uh, a term that mm -hmm. I'd never used before this podcast, uh, but if you are in fact a hacktivist, I'm guessing you don't really care exactly what the ultimate 
result is other than disruption and making the point. And uh, it clear it, it appears they certainly made that point in terms of uh, at least temporarily dis disabling the city website. Exactly. And you guys have done such good reporting on so many issues and, and following up on all those records. Um, you guys have have so much great stuff on our website right now, you know, in response to the shooting of Jacob Blake. Well, I could say the same about, about you and all the stories you've turned. We're very fortunate to have you, Jenna Sachs, at the head of our Contact 6 unit. And we want to remind our, our listeners, if you have any consumer issues, and, and really during the pandemic and all of this, basically 2020 has taken you, I think, off of your usual uh, consumer beat to some degree, because some of these stories, I don't think hacktivism would have typically been probably right in your wheelhouse, but here you are on a podcast talking about it. Uh, if you have things that you want to see Jenna investigate, probe further, or anything you'd like us to discuss here on the podcast, please reach out to us at fox6investigators at fox.com. That's the, the, the email address we're giving out, obviously, for the Open Record podcast, fox6investigators at fox.com. And, of course, you can always go to fox6now.com and, and look for a con uh, Contact 6 form to submit your complaint directly to Jenna and the Contact 6 team. Jenna, thank you so much again for being on the podcast today. We love having you on. Miss seeing you in person. It's been so long since we've all been in our uh, in our pod back in the office at, at Fox 6 News, but uh, grateful to have you on the, on the podcast again. Oh, I'm happy to come on anytime. And thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. In addition to, obviously, Contact 6 is Jenna Sachs and Amanda St. Hilaire, who's on assignment. There's producer Pete, editor Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and our executive producer, Sarah Smith. Please subscribe to Open Record. If you haven't done that already, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Brian Polson. And for Amanda St. Hilaire, we'll be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Tuesday. Tuesday.